our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Sprengel is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with the help of the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our show is about biotoxins in Maine's waters. Most listeners will have heard about red tide, a term used to describe a harmful algal bloom when a microscopic algae species occurs in large quantities and produces toxins that make shellfish dangerous to eat. Today, we will learn about the biology and ecology of red tide and other biotoxins that have recently bloomed in our coastal waters. We'll explore why they bloom, what the impact of these blooms is on public health, and what the state and the shellfish industry are doing to keep consumers safe. So in the studio with me today, I'm excited to have two people who can help um, help us understand this complex issue and help us feel confident that Maine seafood is indeed safe and delicious to eat. So welcome to the show to my guests. Um, in the studio with me today, we have Barry King, who runs the Biotoxins Monitoring Program of the Department of Marine Resources, and he's based at the Lemoyne Lab. Hi, Barry. Thanks Hi. for coming. Great to be here. Great. And we also have Fiona DeConing, who is the co-owner of Acadia Aqua Farms, a mussel farming business based in Trenton. Hi, Fiona. Hi, thank you for having me. Great. Um, so this is, uh, biotoxins are a complicated issue that have been in the media a little bit for the last couple years. Um, but before we jump into understanding the biology of biotoxins, let's learn a little bit more about who our guests are and how they've come to be engaged in this work. So Barry, tell us a little bit about your job at the um, Department of Marine Resources Lab in Lemoyne. Hi. Yeah. So essentially, I go around from site to site along the coast of Maine. We cover from the Penobscot River to uh, the Canadian border, and we dig clams, mussels, etc., to essentially get them down for testing to see if they're safe for consumption. And how did you get into this work? Uh, well, when I was in college. I was doing this uh, summer internship where I was reading plankton samples, and that kind of led into an interest in plankton, which led to me applying for a job, a seasonal job with Maine Department of Marine Resources. Great. And you were telling me before the show that uh, you went to the University of Maine at Machias. I did. That's correct. Great. Yeah. So you've been involved in marine work in our region for a long time, it sounds like. Yep. 
Great. Super. Thanks for coming today. How about you, Fiona? Tell us a little bit about what Acadia Aquafarms is all about. Well, we are a an aquaculture operation, which means we grow seafood, and our, our specialty is mussels. Um, we came to Maine 12 years ago, um, and we're looking for an opportunity to farm um, in, in a area with clean water and natural beauty which uh, is the advantage of being a grower you have to live on the coast in beautiful places so we lucked out there so uh, we have a, a, a farm still in the Netherlands as well um, we've been farming here for 12 years and uh, our eldest son is now also working with us so he will be the sixth generation of mussel farmers that we have in our family so it's an exciting place to work and uh, huge opportunities it's just wonderful that's great. And you said that you still own a farm in the Netherlands. Um, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your farm in the Netherlands before we dive into Maine. Okay, well, ne- the Netherlands is a small country with a lot of people in it. I think there's something like 20 million people live there. And the area is a third of the state of Maine. So it's very crowded. Subsequently, it's very highly regulated. In order to be able to do anything, you have to be monitored and watch what your impacts are. So we're coming from a highly regulated industry. We have a company there that is, um, I think it produces like one or two percent of the national production for mussels there. So my husband, of course, he's he's the f- fifth generation. Um, he took over that farm from his uh, um, from his grandfather, actually. And uh, it, we have a cousin who's running that over there. But it does mean that we keep up to date with the, the science developments and the technology developments and things like that. So we're able to use that in our decision making for how we run our farm here. Great. And um, I think I understand that the kind of farming that you do here in Maine is similar to what is done in the Netherlands, but a, 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 a di- slightly different technique than the way that mussel farms run in Maine. Is yes, that correct? Yes. It's, I mean, it's the same species, but we, we grow them on the seabed. They call this bottom culture, like seabed culture mussels. And most of the um, mussels are produced in North America on ropes. So they are suspended in the water column, hanging on, on ropes. We use the seabed uh, using a technique that basically they've been doing since the time of Napoleon. So, you know, it's been an awful long time. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're just applying that to this area. It was a bit of an experiment because it hadn't been done here before, but the results have been good. And, and you get the the, the flavour and the the strength of, of shipping of a, of a wild mussel with the high quality of a cultured farmed mussel so it's it's a great combination and, and you know the, the seafood produced in the coast of Maine is just world class it really is great thank you thanks for coming today it's good to have you and we're looking forward to hearing more about how um, biotoxins affect the shellfish industry um, and also um, but before we jump into that Barry let's let's start with explaining what are biotoxins it sounds like uh, you know, if you've not heard the word, you may have heard the word red tide. Um, so, so give us sort of a lay of the land um, of what a biotoxin is, what red tide is, and uh, what we're talking about. Certainly. Well, the first thing is biotoxin is kind of a scary word, you know, but uh, really it's just a naturally occurring substance that you can find within animals, plants, and specifically marine algae is what we're having an issue in Maine with. Um, you can think of biotoxins as similar to caffeine, nicotine, and substances like that. Um, they're kind of a natural defense mechanism for an organism to protect themselves from predators. And um, they occur, so in the marine environment, how do they occur? 
So uh, primarily they occur in marine uh, phytoplankton, which is the primary food source of our clams and mussels and shellfish. And phytoplankton is microscopic algae species that float around in the water column, correct? correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so why do they occur? Uh, well, it's it's kind of not well understood. Um, uh, mostly it's an anti-grazing mechanism, you know, protecting from predation. Uh, it could also be a way to reduce competition for, you know, space and nutrients and sunlight, uh, things like that. So they occur naturally, but occasionally they bloom, and there are many more of them, and that's when it becomes a concern, right? Correct, yeah. So essentially when these algae get the right conditions and they're very happy, they start to reproduce and grow in numbers, and that's when they produce more of the toxin. And what are the conditions that makes them happy? Oh, well, it's it's a combination of things. You know, you got to have your nutrients, you got to have sunlight, you know, the right temperature gradients. And it's kind of like growing a garden. So you got to have all those factors in play. And, yeah. and um, are we able to predict when a bloom might happen? Uh, kind of, sort of. Um, there's a lot of science still still being discovered, but uh, things like Alexandrium, which is one of our more common uh, red tides, uh, it usually starts blooming around in the spring, and we can kind of see from from our phytoplankton samples that you know we start seeing the cells in like March, and by July we're seeing you know our peak bloom season. Um, and so you 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 talked about Alexandrium, so that's one of the species. Talk a little bit about um, is red tide specifically one species? Are there other species that have um, that are potentially harmful? Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, we also deal with uh, a couple other species. I mean, the term red tide is is kind of like a general uh, kind of term. Uh, another species we've been seeing very commonly is Pseudonychia, which uh, causes an amnesic poisoning. Um, we typically see that start to bloom in the fall um, and start seeing toxin in the fall. Um, there's also Dinophysis, which causes diuretic shellfish poisoning that we see essentially year-round, but... Thankfully, we don't really see it in any high numbers currently. And explain a little bit about the toxicity. So these these animals, the shellfish and other species, consume the phytoplankton, and then the toxins go into their tissues. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So, you know, you have your clams and your mussels, and they're eating this this phytoplankton as their primary food source. And then, you know, humans, we eat clams and mussels, and these shellfish have been accumulating large amounts of this toxin. So to them, you know, a little bit to us could be a lot. And, you know, they just accumulate and accumulate, and that leads to unsafe levels of toxin. And they are not unsafe for the survival of that particular clam or mussel, correct? correct? So it's more when somebody higher up on the food chain, like humans or mammals, eat the shellfish. Mammals, birds, Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, a little bit, help us understand a little bit about sort of the, um, I guess the question would be, is it is it only a danger for humans who, when you eat a shellfish that has a high concentration of biotoxins, or should people be concerned about things like swimming when there's a red tide event? That sort of question. Uh, that's a great question. Um, 
in some areas of the world, we do have red tide, you know, harmful algal blooms that could cause irritation to skin. Um, in the state of Maine, we don't have that issue. I mean, you shouldn't drink seawater anyway, but if you were to drink seawater, it's not going to make you sick. You know, swimming isn't going to, if you have a cut, it's not going to do anything. You need essentially a large amount of this toxin for it to affect you. And you need to ingest it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you said there's a few different species and you said that there's been, so, so red tide is the one that I think we hear about the most, yeah. right? So that's, yeah. the, that's the one. Is the water actually red? No, no. That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, the term red tide came from a completely different species of plankton and it just became kind of a nickname. Um, and they did see a discoloration of the water, but 99% of the time, there's no discoloration. It looks crystal clear. It looks beautiful. It's very inviting. You wouldn't know what's going on until you look at the water in a microscope. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and uh, I heard you say that that the the toxins are naturally occurring within the phytoplankton. Correct. Can you differentiate for us a little bit between biotoxins that are naturally occurring and bacteria, which I know is another... Um, area that the Department of Marine Resources plays close attention to in Certainly. terms of public safety. Yeah. So, you know, your biotoxins are naturally occurring. They don't seem to have a specific source other than the plankton, which has to have the right conditions to bloom, whereas bacteria closures are, are mostly from kind of like a point source, pollution source, like wastewater treatment plants or uh, farm runoff or something similar of that nature. Um, bacteria and plankton biologically are very different. Uh, bacteria are very small, and they don't photosynthesize light in the same ways that plankton do, phytoplankton do. Um, they're managed differently. There's different thresholds, uh, whereas red tides, you're looking at a specific toxin. Uh, with bacteria, you're looking for a bacteria concentration. Great, thanks. Um, so today we're focusing especially on biotoxins, the ones that are naturally occurring and that on occasion bloom and might cause um, some challenges for our shellfish um, and the consumption of shellfish. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, what happens when a bloom occurs, um, what's happening biologically, and then what happens, what does that trigger for the state and for the state process to make sure that consumers are safe? Okay, certainly. Um, so uh, a big part of our program is phytoplankton monitoring. Uh, we watch the plankton. We look to see what it's doing. And when we start seeing a species start to bloom, you know, we see the numbers start to increase and increase week after week. And uh, that kind of triggers us to sample shellfish. A lot of the times we're already sampling the shellfish, but we make sure we expand our shellfish and, and cover all of the areas. Um, so once that happens, we send our shellfish down to Bigelow Laboratories in Booth Bay Harbor, and they essentially run it through a, a machine, and they give us a concentration of what the toxin in the shellfish may be. So you're literally harvesting mussels, clams? Yep. Yeah, we clams. go out. Any weather, uh, whatever species in that area uh, we think is a concern, uh, we bring it back to the lab, we blend it up in a blender, and we ship that down. Um, sometimes it's raining, sometimes it's snowing, you know. Sometimes you get sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you collect a sample, and then you send it off. You, you blend it, which yep. I, sort of as a funny image, and then you send it off to the, the lab at Bigelow yep. Labs in Booth Bay Harbor, and they do an analysis on it to identify if there's any yep. biotoxins in it. Yep, that's correct. And is there a particular threshold that they're looking for in terms of amount of biotoxin? Yeah, yeah. Each toxin has its its threshold. Um, uh, with uh, paralytic shellfish poisoning from alexandrium, you got to have eighty uh, microli- micrograms per hundred grams of shellfish tissue. And with pseudonychia, amnesic shellfish poisoning, you got to have twenty micrograms per gram of shellfish tissue. And so alexandrium and pseudonychia are both names of species of phytoplankton. Correct, yes. And amnesic shellfish poisoning and I forget the other one that you Paralytic shellfish. Paralytic shellfish poisoning are um, the impact of the toxin on humans when they eat it? Yeah. Okay. Um, So you have a threshold. um, And if that threshold is exceeded, then it sends up red flags because you know that if humans consume it, with yep. that that amount of toxin in it, it can be it can cause people to be sick. Yep. Yeah, they're very conservative numbers, but they're there because you know we don't want anyone getting sick. Yeah. yeah. And they are put forth by the the FDA and shellfish sanitation programs. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. So let's turn to Fiona for a second. Um, and so the state. Uh, does a bunch of st- testing. There's some testing that happens at the bio lab. So F- Fiona, to remind folks, is um, with a mussel farming operation, Acadia Aqu- Aqua Farms. Um, when you find out from the DMR that a bloom has happened and that the levels are concerning, what what happens for you? What kicks into place? Well, you're sort of jumping in at the middle of mm-hmm. what would happen. T- typically, the um, the state is very good at communicating with industry and particularly if you have some volume of production they're very open to open communication so we would be talking with them and tracking it a little bit at the level that they do and then they they give us um, information but if if there's going to be a closure then it is it, there comes a notice a notification of a, of a closure and that that is triggered by the protocols that Barry just indicated and that would mean that you are not allowed to harvest in the area at that point. Now, the closures are defined geographically and the state, the DMR, then works with their public health department to make sure that those are enforceable and obvious for people so that there isn't a confusion. Because so, it's not just, I mean, with farms, our farms don't move. But if you're, if you're a clamour and you're going to different areas for clamours, it's more difficult for enforcement to see, you know, a to be able to warn people not to harvest in those areas. They're not always, uh, you know, there's the, the science is one part, the regulation is one part, and communication is the other part. So I, I have to say that the state is pretty good at the communication part of this uh, of this picture. But it means that you then do not have product to harvest from that area. Yeah, yeah because you want to prevent people from eating it. Yeah, it's also, yeah. You, would, yeah. you know, we are licensed, we are regulated, we are monitored, we are have to be in compliance to have that license. So it's not just that you don't want to get somebody sick, which, of course, nobody wants. I mean, it's a primary objective with any of the public health issues here. But it's also you would lose your license if you you did something like that because you have to have an enforcement accountability part as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've we've heard uh, about Alexandrium. So that's the more common one. Um, ha, ha, so so when we think of it as more common, does it happen annually? Does there a bloom? How often? How often does this happen from that particular species, the one that we sort of know as the red tide in general? Yeah, so Alexandrium, the the cause of paralytic shellfish poisoning, uh, typically is a year-round or every year kind of thing. Um, the intensity varies from year to year, uh, which I, I'm not sure why, but it seems to have its cycles. And so we can generally predict that every year at this point in time we can we can anticipate it somewhere on the coast. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps- typically it starts down east, like Eastport, Copscook Bay, and then it'll kind of move down the coast towards Penobscot Bay because that's the the prevailing current along the coast. We'll bring the bloom down. Correct. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, and so for people like me and probably a lot of our listeners who like to go harvest mussels in the intertidal zone, what do you tell us? Uh, well, the, one of the best places to start is to look at our website. Uh, it's the main.gov slash DMR, and there's a little tab that's uh, shellfish sanitation. And there you can see all of our bacteria closures, all of our biotoxin closures. There's there's pretty detailed maps on there. Um, there's also a red tide hotline that you can call that's essentially a spoken word version of what's on the website. And I actually wrote that number down, um, and we'll find it and make sure to share it with people before the end of the show. Um, so if you're just tuning in, I just wanted to let you know that you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU. Um, our show today is about marine biotoxins and um, the state protocols for um monitoring and identifying when there are issues on our coast related to marine biotoxins and how the state and the industry um, work together to make sure that consumers stay stay safe in the shellfish that we're choosing to eat. So shellfish being a species that accumulates the biotoxins. Um, We'll open up the phone lines in just a little bit. So think of of your questions that you might have for our guests today. So um, so the other species that we've heard about and that are uh, listeners may have read about that have occurred in the last few that has occurred in the last couple of years is Pseudonychia. Um, tell us a little bit about Pseudonychia. So Pseudonychia is a, a very different species. It's uh, it's found in the waters year round. Um, there doesn't really seem to be any real rhyme or reason right now as to when it is, where it is. Um, uh, typically, we see kind of in the spring. We'll start seeing numbers go up. It'll kind of hang out in the waters for a little while. And then towards late fall, it'll start going into a reproduction phase. And that's when we start seeing toxin from these species. So it's kind of interesting. So it happens at a different time. Yep. How does that compare to the to the other one, to Alexandrium? Uh, Alexandrium, uh, it's constantly producing a toxin. It's very predictable um, when we see levels go up, we see toxin levels go up. Whereas Sudanitia, we can see a huge increase in population, but no toxin whatsoever until conditions are right and they decide to start producing toxin. And with Sudanitia, that's been happening and has caught everyone by surprise, if I understand correctly. Yes, it's it's very surprising. Um, What's the, I don't know that there's an answer to this. Why do we think that it's started to occur now? Um, you know, it's a great question. It's a million-dollar question for sure. Um, 
One of the big concerns is it's a new species that we're starting to see in Maine. Uh, there's several species within the Pseudonychia group. Um, they're very hard to identify, so it's it's a lot of new science, and we're getting a lot of help from a lot of people, which is great. And Are there um, theories that are proposing that the changing and warming water temperatures in the Gulf of Maine might be contributing to the blooms? I, I mean, it's... It could contribute. Uh, there's there's a lot of research to be done. I mean, uh, nutrients is a big factor. You know, they have to have all of these factors kind of working together. And we're seeing large blooms in December in Casco Bay. So you know, they don't really seem to mind temperature much at all. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so what are the protocols that the state has in place to um, ensure public safety? So... We're monitoring the, uh, the the shellfish, and we close it down when when we reach our thresholds. Um, this is really the big one. Uh, yeah. We communicate. Uh, there's email services you can sign up for where you actually get an email when a closure is put in place. Um, yeah, how about from the industry perspective? Well, there are sort of stages involved. First of all, you have the closure notice, and then the state goes into a protocol of testing. So there are there are schedules and protocols they follow for each, whether it's PSP or ASP or any other closure. And PSP is paralytic Paraly- shellfish yes. poisoning. ASP. And ASP is from the Pseudonychia, which is the relatively new one, the one that's caught everybody a little bit by surprise because it suddenly, it, it has happened in other parts of the world, but we hadn't seen this strain that produced the toxin up until a couple of years ago, and it reacts very quickly. So the state is putting a lot of what they call precautionary closures in. So when they start to see the cell count of that particular strain going up, there'll be a closure and then you can only sell if it's tested first, for example. So that can be a way to work with industry so you're able to supply the product if it's safe to eat, so people aren't um, going without or... Um, and then you, and then they'll continue with the regular testing to see how the whole bloom develops. So it's very specific. It's very high tech, um, and the, again, the communications are really important because these industries depend on being able to sell our product when our customers need them. And if we haven't got it there for them, then they may go somewhere else. So in order to support the economy of the coastal communities, it's important that we are given all the opportunity when it is safe to do so to sell the product. So when there's a closure, it quite literally means that you can't harvest the mussels in the area where there's a closure. Right, right, exactly. Now, one of the ways that from the aquaculture industry perspective, one of the ways that we are able to mitigate this risk somewhat is to have farms in different locations because the water bodies are not all responding the same way at the same time. So again, to be able to be more consistent with your supply opportunities for your customers that, who are relying on you to supply them, um, we we try to have product to harvest in all of those areas at one time, at least some of it to be able to continue to ride out a particular closure. Um, that that has helped. But uh, for developing, you know, as, you, as you're developing an aquaculture business, it takes a long time to get to that stage. But to be able to have different locations is, is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your operation, you have different locations and yeah. you send mussels 
all over the US. All over. We particularly, we, we make a choice. I mean, that's a, biz, a business decision, yeah. but really we, we don't do air freight because it's complicated and I'd like to see seafood being consumed quickly after it's harvested mm-hmm. so they get maximum enjoyment of it, really. But we, we supply in Maine in the summertime. We, we sell quite a lot of our product into Maine, but most of it goes out of state. So it would go down into Boston, into the big seafood markets there. And from there on, it's spread out basically east coast um, in as far as, as Ohio, some in Texas, that kind of thing. But I, uh, that's where we are focused right now. I mean, that can change if we can produce more, then I guess we can sell more. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's got to be trucked. So. And when, so in the 12 years that you've been operating, mm-hmm. what's been your experience with Red Tides? Well, one of the, again, because we farm, I mean, it's different for the, for the wild harvest community. Okay. I can't speak for the wild harvest either for clams or for mussels, really. Okay. But from a farming perspective, one of the reasons we choose the lease sites where they are is that there has historically not been an area where PSP, the Alexandrian blooms, have occurred. Uh, which is why the ASP, which is the pseudonicha, caught us by surprise because we hadn't had really much problem with biotoxins up until two years ago. And now we've had significant problem. We lost um, a whole month of production last year, which makes a significant impact to your year results. I imagine, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, when you so, – so for that month, you in, in those particular areas mm-hmm. – um, you just you have to stop harvesting. Yes. What happens to your product? Does it just keep the growing? Product, and yes, can... it's beautiful. <laughs> they eat this stuff, and so they just get nice and fat from it. It's uh-huh. just that, that that has to sort of metabolize through their system, and that's why there are protocols for length of time. Okay. So as cell counts go down, it doesn't mean to say that you can harvest straight away because it has to work through their systems until the toxin levels in the shellfish meat itself has decreased. So it it there are... They're very specific. They're very um, conservative numbers and testing is done. And if there's any, um, we can have what they call a lot test. So if if it's looking, the trend is going in the right direction, then the marine uh, resources department allows us to take a sample from that area and have it tested at the Big Olo lab. And if the toxin levels are okay, then we are allowed to sell those ones. Okay. So if, anything that does go out, will be safe to eat because there are multiple layers of protection built into the regulations. Um, I imagine that we might have some questions out there. So I'd like to open the phone lines to our listeners if you would like to call in with any questions or uh, your own experience with red tide or biotoxins on the coast of Maine. um, Please call us. Uh, Our toll-free call-in number is 1-866-625-9378. That's one eight six 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 two five W E R U. So let us know if you have any questions or comments. Um, so Fiona was just talking about um, a certain amount of time has to go by for the toxins to work its way through the system and get back to a safe level. Um, so presumably, I'm looking to Barry, who's our representative from the Department of Marine Resources at the Lemoyne Lab. Presumably, you continue to test, um, to take samples and to test the shellfish over a certain amount of time. Correct, yeah. Uh, essentially, we look at the trends, and once we get our free, first clean one, we wait seven days and sample from that area again. And if it's clean again, then we open up for harvest, and then we continue to sample after that until there's no toxin in the shellfish at all. Okay, okay. And then it's back open and 
we're back in the regular zone and correct and we're still monitoring our plankton numbers and shellfish uh-huh. at the same uh-huh. time got it okay um yeah fiona i was going to say that the the department does a sort of a, a, a background level of work all year and when they get a bloom like this they go into overdrive it's like a nest of ants they're they're scurrying all over the place in order to help us and to help the public and it it really is it's a great I don't think that that people recognize quite how much work goes into it I mean these guys sometimes if they haven't been able to get a courier there they are driving it all the way down to Booth Bay and they've got multiple people getting multiple samples and there's always a deadline and there's always the next tide and there's it's just a lot of work and we really do admire it because when it gets busy boy does it get busy for them yeah (laughs) certainly (laughs) great so I think we have a caller um Tom from Stuben hi welcome to the program Hi, uh, I have a um, uh, question uh, that's based upon anecdotal uh, uh, explanation. So I, I just want to kind of uh, get to understand the process a little better. Great, great. Um, uh, uh, so Stuben is uh, basically the end of Gouldsboro Bay in uh, a separate uh, enclosed bay, which is really just an extension of Gouldsboro Bay called Joy Bay. And that and that bay is just basically one tidal flat, like many of the bays in the area. Ten-mile peninsulas, ten-mile bays, um, something like that. And uh, this bay is uh, perennially closed um, to shell fishing. And uh, the explanation that I heard of that is that there are some um, uh, offending camps uh, that have never improved their septic systems, and that's the reason why that bay stays perennially closed. But something in me almost doubts that, uh, that I hear rumors that it might be opened, and yet I have not heard of it being opened. So I was curious what what your thoughts are in the local uh, regulation of individual bays and how that process is, you know, what the deciding process is for opening and closing individual bays. And I can take my answer off the air. Great. Thank you so much for that question, Tom. That seems uh, like a really important question to gain a better understanding about how these decisions are made at the local level. And I think, um, so thank you, Tom. I I think also um, Tom was talking a little bit about um, closures that may be due to bacteria rather than biotoxins. And I'm looking to Barry to help help us tease out uh, what Tom was talking about. Correct. That sounds like a, a typical kind of a bacteria closure. Um, certainly with my experience, I know that there really hasn't been much in the way of biotoxins up in that area. And usually if it's closed seasonally every year, that means it's a kind of a seasonal bacteria closure, which could be from a point source or a non-point source, just wildlife. And can you um, just give us a brief summary about how how bacteria is monitored for and how decisions are made to open and close shellfish flats related to bacteria, which is, I know, a different process than biotoxin monitoring. Certainly, yeah. So it's very similar in a way. Uh, Year-round, people are collecting water samples, and uh, essentially these water samples are analyzed at the lab in Lemoyne, 
and you get a bacterial concentration from that, and you follow the same kind of shellfish standards from the FDA, and you can determine whether or not it meets the threshold. And um, to Tom's question about how decisions get made at the local level. Is it um, entirely DMR jurisdiction or do local, do municipalities um, have a decision-making process in the opening and closing of shellfish or is it primarily the DMR? It's it's primarily DMR. And presumably you're working also in partnership with the local shellfish committees and the harbor masters. Yeah, yeah, they work with town offices and and shellfish committees and there's a lot of communication. Great, great. Did you? Okay. No additions from Fiona. Um, so thanks, Tom. That's a that's a great question. And uh, before the show, we were, my guests and I were talking about the differences between biotoxins and um, bacteria, and the different ways that they're that they're monitored for and enforced. So that that's a, a really helpful question. Um, let's go back to biotoxins for a minute, um, and let's talk a little bit more about the Sudanicha bloom that's been happening, and or that has occurred, I should say. I think there is not currently one. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Um, and uh, let's hear a little bit about what's happened um, from both from both perspectives, from both the state perspective and um, the perspective of an industry owner uh, who wants to start. Okay, Fiona. I've been volunteered to start. Right. <laughs> well, as as we mentioned previously, this, this was is a relatively new thing for the state of Maine. They, they've seen it in other areas, in other parts of the world, but here it came as a bit of a surprise. Um, and last year, particularly, the, the rates, the cell counts went up very, very fast. And so we get not much warning before the closure comes in. Often we can start to think from a business perspective about making sure that we've got our ducks in the row to be able to harvest from somewhere else, if that's the case. But A, it was quite a large closure and B, it happened very quickly. So we ended up at one point. Do you want me to talk about a recall at this yeah, point? That yeah, that would be great. Okay, so at one point um, we had harvested because of the process. We we harvest the day before, and then they're brought into our building where we can um, pump water through them for overnight. It's called purging. It's just really just to get rid of any sand that might have been taken into the mussels during the harvest process. So we had already landed these and we had already packed them because they go out the same day as we process them. So because we like to get fresh product to to our customers. So, you know, an advantage from being from us compared to Canadian product, for example, is that anybody on the coast of Maine is that much closer to some of the big market areas like Boston and New York and and there on out. So we that's our process. We do it really quickly. They come in, they're processed, they're packed, they're iced, they're boxed, they go on a truck um, that comes down out of Beals Island um, um, carrying lobster. We kind of piggyback and work with them and then it takes them down to the big seafood markets. So what happened with the um, Sudanicha is we had an ASP closure but our product had already gone out. So that is just the worst possible situation that can happen for a company um and for you know for for the state as well it it, it kicks into um into play a process they call a recall recall process and what happens we we have to keep accurate records anyway as a seafood dealer in the state that's part of your regulation to get your license you have to you have to have a list of who gets which company, what area, the contact person, how much mus- how much product has gone out to that person. You do that on a daily packing 
anyway. But when a recall, then you have to kick into, um, you have to reach everybody. So uh, that meant that day we had sent out something like seven or eight thousand pounds of mussels oh and they had gone pretty quickly pretty far and so I, I, then I was just the busiest it's I've only experienced this once and I hope not to have to have to do it again but but because of your business connections with the people you talk to for your orders all the time those are the people you have to reach and they then have to feed back to you the numbers that they can destroy so if they've got them in-house, they have to be destroyed. If they have sent them out, they have to tell me who they've sent them to. And then it, it kicks in a national um, protocol. So the FDA has protocols which we adhere to because that's part of what we do. Um, and so the, basically they trace everything. So uh, our, it was a very successful recall from my understanding from the public health department. We managed to... Um, contact everybody and I think it's something only like about from our company only 10 pounds had actually been eaten nobody got sick which is of course the biggest thing so it was um it was a scramble and then of course all of that it's, it's a big loss too because you've paid to harvest it pack it send it out trucking transfer fees all the customers have lost money on it as well so we have to we have to um, refund of course they can use it so it's a big hit financial hit and presumably um it's half that same time it happened to your business but also multiple other businesses on the coast of Maine. i would imagine yes it did yes yeah so the the sort of impact on our local economy is significant significant yes it's much better to prevent this of this happening rather than have to kick into a recall yeah yeah um tom it sounds like you're back on the phone great tom from stubend uh yeah, let's. What's on your mind? Well, first of all, I, I, you know the discussion about paralytic uh, shellfish disorder or whatever you want to call it um, is is important, and I don't mean to detract from that, but I do want to make the point that if every bay that is um, posted with paralytic uh, shellfish uh, uh, warnings uh, is not actually suffering from red tide, then in essence, that masks uh, the fact that uh, there are people who should be cleaning up their septic systems. Uh, And because it says paralytic tide, it does not tell the truth of the matter, which is that that particular bay is closed for bacterial reasons, not because of paralytic um, shellfish. Do you understand that? Do you understand my point? Yeah, let me make sure that that we're hearing your question correctly. So, if um, if there's a posting that closes a shellfish flat and it's being listed as an issue with a biotoxin or a red tide, when the fundamental issue is actually a bacteria, we should be dealing with the bacteria. Yes, and also that uh, by virtue of not uh, closing it with a specific closure, but making it seem like something that's environmental and avoidable, then we're not really facing the fact that this is a vast flat of uh, what could be a healthy clam environment. Uh, And uh, and that there might, you know, it might be time to look at how to um, help individual property owners deal with their septic. Uh, yeah, 
You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Tom or Fiona, I mean, uh, Barry or Fiona, what what are your thoughts uh, about Tom's comment? I can speak on that a little bit. Great. Um, Thanks, Tom. Again, I'm with biotoxins, so I'm I'm apologizing ahead of advance if I don't have everything quite straightened out. But um, because your your office is primarily focused on biotoxins rather than bacteria, uh, is that just more? My work is more biotoxin. Okay. But um, there is a scientist in that area that manages that area year round. Um, they kind of reevaluate things every so often. Uh, they do work with town LPAs, so licensed plumbing inspectors, and and the town itself to alleviate a lot of these point source problems. And uh, I honestly don't know what the closure is for, but uh, there's very distinct closures on the DMR website. So. Yeah, Fiona. Yes, it's an interesting point that Tom is making because this is a whole other conversation and maybe this warrants another conversation at some point. But the bacterial closures are very different from PSP. So the the bacterial closures, as Tom mentioned, uh, a lot of it can be a point source. For example, it could be a faulty septic. It could also be wildlife. It can be beavers, geese. It could, anything with warm blood basically can produce these bacteria levels that will reach the threshold for the water quality and we're really we're looking at water quality in this case for from a from a bacterial perspective now if if there is a point source identified and that's a whole process in and of itself because that means a watershed survey has to be done so people have to go uh, state monitors have to go and take samples from various streams coming into a a watershed it's a complicated process but if they are are lucky enough to actually identify a point source that's usually a good thing because that means that that can be dealt with but there's to address the local versus state section of, of tom's comment we have to get that rectified from a municipal perspective. So if there's a, a, if there's a, a septic issue, then the, the town's plumbing inspector will be, um, will be given that information. And there are certain, I can't remember the names of the documents, but there's basically, is a, there's a, a legal process that goes through. But the DMR does not have any authority to enforce, make that happen. That has to be at state level. So if... At, at municipal level. A municipal level, level beg your pardon. Yeah, so the municipal, the, the town would have to say, we want you to be able to fix this. And sometimes it's just a, a matter of, there's no funding there to do that. You can't say to a, an elderly lady living on her own, well, you need to re, replace your septic system. It's going to cost you all these thousands of dollars. So sometimes those can be the reasons why there's a closure that stays in place. Now, often there are success stories where things are fixed and the water quality cleans up and the clams are able to be harvested again. But it's not always that easy. Yeah, I think Tom raises a great point, and I think we will do a show in the near future on bacterial closures um, to make sure we touch on that in more detail. But a a question that that Tom brought up that I thought was really useful is um, uh, when a flat is closed. Barry, do you know – this may not be your part of DMR, so you can let us know if you do or don't know this – how is that – you know, we've all seen those signs on the trees near the landings and near the flats – is that just this shellfish bed is closed, period, or does it describe why it's closed? It, it's an either-or sign. It says it's either bacteria or red tide. It doesn't differentiate between the two. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. It says it could be either one. Yeah. And then how about, um, we mentioned earlier the Red Tide Hotline or the Shellfish Sanitation Hotline, um, as it's called now, that the public can call to get some information about the closures. Correct. Does yeah. that differentiate? It should, yeah. 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 So, that, so that's a, a place where we can zero yeah. in more specifically on whether yeah. the closure is due to biotoxins and red tide or or bacteria. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Uh, another really good resource is their website. And so many people, even when they're harvesters, have a, have a smartphone with them that they can get. And the, the maps are very easy to, to read. Instead of having to look at, at description, um, written descriptions of where these areas are, the maps um, are color-coded. They're, they're there and easy to see. So it's very easy. You just draw it up on your cell phone wherever you are, and you can see if you are in an open classified area or a closed Great, great. Um, and so to get to that website, folks should log on to dmr.gov? Yeah, it's uh, www.maine.gov slash dmr. And there's a little tab that says shellfish sanitation management. And uh, there's a section for bacteria. Uh, there's a section for biotoxins, uh, shellfish consumption advisories, and, and things of that nature. Great. Just a wealth of information. Great, great. Um if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations, and we're talking about biotoxins and red tide on the coast of Maine. And in the studio with us today, we have um, Fiona DeConing, who um, is the co-owner of Acadia Aqua Farms, a muscle farm business based in Trenton, and Barry King, um, who's with the Biotoxins Monitoring Program from the Department of Marine Resources based at the lab in Lemoyne. Um, we do have some time left if anybody else has some calls uh, with questions or comments, um, and and in particular, if you happen to be a clamor or someone who harvests, um, we'd love your perspective in terms of how biotoxins have impacted you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, from a consumer safety perspective. So there's lots of protocols in place to ensure that shellfish doesn't make it into the marketplace. Um, and the recall experience sounds like a headache. And I'm glad that you retrieved all of your impacted shellfish. Um, and it sounds like it, a number of other businesses had to do that same process. Um, what, what should consumers be looking for? What, what are the maybe symptoms that they should pay attention to? What are they? What, what, what do you say to consumers? Well, certainly, um, definitely, uh, always, if you're harvesting yourself, make sure you're familiar with maps and and different closures. Um, if you're purchasing shellfish, make sure it's through a licensed, reputable dealer. Um, that's a huge thing. And uh, if you start noticing any weird symptoms, you know, your body always goes through the, you know, the nausea, the vomiting, etc. And that's, that's a huge sign that you may have some sort of an illness. And uh, for paralytic, you might start feeling a little tingling on the lips and the fingers and and amnesic shellfish poisoning, you, you kind of start to lose your short-term memory. Those are some things to look for. And um, are these things that our uh, local health community are sort of looking out for? Uh, yeah, they're actually notified when we have a bloom, uh, different hospitals in the area to look for these symptoms. And uh, it's a whole different chain of people. The main CDC, for example, um, when somebody has these sort of symptoms, we start investigating what they ate, where they ate it, and it's a whole another process. That would be probably another radio show. <laughs> yeah, We've got lots of radio shows lined up yeah. here today. Um, good, lots of good topics. How, 
Fiona, were you going to yes, say Yes, because we did mention the fact that, you know, that the worst outcome is somebody who actually gets sick. And that's what Barry was referring to. That kicks in a whole different set of of protocols about how you identify what they ate and when. That's for the state. The, the, the DMR does that, that work. So we sort of had it from a nobody got sick from a recall. It was a headache enough. But if somebody is sick, that's probably the nightmare scenario because you have to try and find where they ate it did they eat one type of seafood only did they eat something else did it come from you know another food source it doesn't always just because someone got sick and we happen to have a bloom doesn't mean to say they got sick from that bloom so it's complicated but again the fda has very strict rules about what you do in that situation as a state regulator and they follow it that's correct yeah. Um, so how do the blooms that have been occurring here on the coast of Maine um, correlate to blooms that might be happening further south on the eastern seaboard or into Canada? Do you guys know how Maine compares? Uh, Canada, yeah, we get we get information from Canada. Um, they seem to see different numbers than we do, which is kind of interesting. Um, something like Alexandrium, we can see their scores before we get scores, which is another kind of early warning system. Um, States like Massachusetts, New Hampshire, they all have their biotoxin monitoring program. They have their own blooms occasionally too. And are the species similar? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities, yep. Yep. Um, How about from the industry perspective? Do Do you have colleagues in other states or across the border who have had similar experiences as you? Colleagues in seafood industry. (laughs) (laughs) We have colleagues in Maine. We are Maine ambassadors. (laughs) No, I'm joking, really. You would see in in notifications from from the Canadian press or, or that sort of thing, you can have a look at it, but we don't have that much direct communication with them. I do know that the, the, the blooms have been relatively mild here up until now but that looks as though that might be changing a little bit and it can be a huge problem on the west coast they have biotoxin blooms that that can kill marine mammals and that can shut down fisheries for 12 13 weeks at a time sometimes what what is the prediction for this coming year so you've had two years of this new species blooming um you've sort of been regularly expecting the Alexandrium red tide bloom for years and we know how to handle it in the state of Maine. What do you what do you see coming down the pike, Barry, from a Department of Marine Resources perspective? Yeah. Well it's it's hard to speculate, but I think we're gonna anticipate, you know, every fall we're gonna see Sudanitja and we're gonna do everything we can to make sure that we, we keep an eye on things and we're ahead of it rather than, you know, being surprised. Yeah, yeah. Um does it have the have you been sort of putting new protocols in place? Yeah, yeah, we're constantly modifying our own our own processes and trying to fine tune everything, and and it, it's a big process, and we're we're doing a lot to to definitely get ahead of things. Yeah, definitely. yeah, and and Fiona, how about from the industry perspective? Well, I think the point that I, I wanted to add to to what Barry was saying is that for for the for the PSP for Alexandrium, we have a lot of historical information. Not that that is necessarily an indicator for predicting how it's going to go in the future, because things are changing quite rapidly environmentally. But for as far as the Alexandria, uh, as as the pseudonature for the ASP closures, we've only got two years of data. It's really hard to make any kind of management predictions when you just don't have the experience with it yet. So what we primarily need is a lot of science 
a lot of science being done right now to try and track this and we will build up data layers which may give some indications on how to manage this moving forward right now it's more or less reactive and I'm wrong on that, but it's it's kind of reactive. As you see things changing, you have to be very careful. There are precautionary. We're hypersensitive to closing things down in order to protect people until we know and have more of an understanding of how this works in practice. So we'll stay tuned and see what happens this coming season. Um, we are at the end of our time here on Coastal Conversations. Um, this has been a really great conversation with our guests. Um, learning, We're learning about biotoxins on the coast of Maine. So I wanted to thank our guests, uh, Barry King, who runs the Biotoxins Monitoring Program at the Department of Marine Resources Lemoyne Lab. Thanks for coming in, Barry. Thanks for having me. And also Fiona DeConing, the co-owner of Acadia Aqua Farms Muscle Farm in uh, Trenton. Thanks thank for coming, for Fiona. Um, thanks also to Tom and our listeners. Uh, Tom, for calling in with some great questions connecting biotoxins and bacteria. Lots more to explore there. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our our show's theme music is A Following Sea. It was composed um, and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.